1: This is the Average Conservationist Podcast brought to you in partner with 2% for Conservation. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of time plus 1% of money equals 2% for Conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitment as popular brands like Sitka, First Light, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and money back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their communities. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for Conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. All right. Welcome back, everybody, to the Average Conservationist Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Ewing, and this is Episode 3, on today's episode, I am joined by Greg Vandenberg. Um, now, by day, Greg works in the healthcare industry, um, and by nights and weekends, and all of his other free time, uh, he is spending that counting mountain goats um, and raising money for the National Wild Turkey Federation. Um, Greg and I go over a bunch of different stuff today, um, and one thing that that I really enjoyed was, was listening to Greg talk about how he was first introduced to the outdoors. Um, really, the more Greg and I got to speaking throughout the course of this conversation was that I realized that Greg and I have a lot of um, similarities uh, in terms of how we were introduced to the outdoors um, and you know where we really gained our appreciation for it um, from such a young age uh in and, and really you know that's one of the cool things about this podcast um in you know in such a short time i've really grown to love the the differences um in the guests that i speak to from week to week i mean you take a look at uh episode 1 when when we spoke to to jared Frazier and talking about what the outdoors means to him and growing up what you know hunting and fishing, you know, for his family, it was, it was vital to their, um, to their well Um, and then, you know, spoke with Mark last week and, and we really focused on, on white tails and, and things like that. And then now this week with Greg, we talk a lot about mountain goats and turkeys. So it's really cool to see, um, just what a, a wide variety, um, Of things that people are into. And again, like I said, that's one of the things that I really love or that I've grown to love uh, about the podcast in such a short time. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Um, It was great speaking with Greg and uh, take a listen. But before we jump into today's episode, I want to take a minute to announce the newest partner for the Average Conservationist Podcast, and that is 2% for Conservation certified business member, Stone Glacier. Now, Stone Glacier specializes in making hunting backpacks. Um, whether you're a whitetail guy, uh, if you're a Western guy, um, Stone Glacier has a pack that uh, that's going to work for you. Um, not only um, are they making um, ultralight backpacks, but they're making um, some great technical outerwear uh, as well as um, backpacking tents that are uh, ultra lightweight for guys that are, uh, you know, putting their pack uh, or putting their camp on their back uh, day in and day out. Uh, You can definitely expect to hear uh, from them in in some upcoming episodes and hear more about them on future episodes. Uh, But in the meantime, you can find them at StoneGlacier.com. All right. On the line today, we have Greg Vandenberg. Greg, how's it going, man?
0: It's going well.
1: How was uh, everything in sunny South Dakota today?
0: <laughs> it's not so sunny today. Uh, a little cloudy, but you know that's typical spring weather here. We kind of as a lot mo- as most northern Midwest states, it kind of goes nice cold, nice cold. You know? Uh, you know, one day you're sweating, next day you're you got a winter coat back on. You know, so
1: yeah, I know exactly how that goes. I've woken up twice this week with snow on the ground here in Michigan. And it's just, it just crushes your spirit when you wake up in the middle of May and there's snow on the ground. But today, finally, uh, things look like they're making a turn and we're supposed to get some pretty consistently warm weather here, um, starting in a few days. So I'm looking forward to it. So let's kind of dive right into things here. So growing up, are you from South Dakota originally?
0: No, so I'm kind of, kind of a little bit from all over. Um, I was actually born in California, but my mom was originally from Montana. So after about nine years, we moved to Montana and that's essentially kind of where, you know, if somebody asked me, where did I grow up? I kind of say, I'd say Montana. That was more, I spent most of my childhood, you know, especially a lot of my memories, you know, outdoors, school, all that stuff. That's, that's all been in Montana, just outside of Bozeman in a little town called Churchill.
1: Okay, so growing up in Montana, or a, you know, a better part of your your youth, at what point did did the outdoors get introduced to you?
0: Um, that actually, really, honestly, that even goes back further than uh, Montana. When growing up, both my parents were teachers, um, and my mom is still a teacher today. Uh, my dad's retired and had some career changes, but he uh, they basically they they always had summers free, so. Um, they grew up camping and being outdoors and fishing and that sort of thing. So they definitely passed that on to us and summers were, were awesome. We would spend, you know, sometimes weeks at a time on the road going to national parks and hiking. And my dad, uh, he, he's a big fisherman, big photographer, not so much into hunting, but you know, they really passed on a lot of the, just being outside and enjoying it. And, and I think kind of, uh, with my dad doing a lot of photography he kind of passed on a lot of appreciation, you know, just kind of, there's something about just when you have to stand there and stare at something for a little bit while, while he's, he's messing with his camera. Sure. And, you know, that was, that was back in the day, the film. So you had to change, you know, your, your, your shutter speed and all that, you know, it wasn't something you could just go back later and mess with necessarily, but uh, you had to do in the moment. So you kind of learn to appreciate some of those things when you're standing there I uh, spent a lot of time with a backpack, uh, carrying tripod and lenses and that sort of thing. So uh so that really uh that, that's really probably started thing a lot of just in appreciating nature.
1: Yeah. So would you say that your dad is probably your the biggest influence on you is from a, from an outdoor standpoint? At,
0: absolutely. Him and my mom both, you know, they they took they they made it a point to get us kids outside and camping and you know, uh we it was very much intentional of how, of how comfortable we war, were living out of a small, uh, like, pop-up tent trailer, you know, and out of a cooler. And, you know, some of the just, all the all the things that we were very comfortable doing, uh, I look back on it and think, like, hey, there's probably a lot of people who didn't necessarily have that experience, you know? So, so they made it, you could tell it was very much intentional on their part.
1: Yeah, it's funny you mention that because I grew up a lot of the same way um, in Michigan where... Well, my parents weren't teachers. We we spent a a, a very um, big amount of time uh, camping in, in the outdoors. I mean, we had a, a local campground that was on a lake maybe 20 minutes, 25 minutes from our house, but we had a, a small pop-up camper that we would pull to this campground, and we would stay there for like a month. I mean, we would, you know, we would stop at home, I guess, if we needed to kind of... Um, re up our supplies or you know get a nice warm shower or something like that but we spent <laughs> you know a month there probably every summer from you know for 10 years probably i mean there was you know a, a number of families that we all kind of did the same thing um and things like that so yeah that's uh that's definitely something that we we have in common there
0: yeah that's funny you mentioned showers i uh i remember very vividly many times uh, having to drive, you know, we're staying in say like a a national park or a state park or something, having to drive, you know, 20, 30 minutes to, a to like a little village and like doing the quarter showers. So that's, that was a lot of memories doing that sort of thing too. Oh yeah. Yeah,
1: (laughs) Yeah. We, uh, we kind of took it one step further. Once I got a little bit older and I was, uh, in high school, later part of high school and in college, we would spend our summers and we would take off, um, usually to like Colorado or Montana for a week to 10 days. And we would do some fly fishing out there. And, uh, it was a bit more remote, um, in parts of, uh, Southern Colorado and, um, Montana where you were kind of bathing in the river and it was extra cold. So yeah, I, I appreciate the <laughs> yeah. warm showers. So from a hunting standpoint and a fishing standpoint, are you, I know you said that your, uh, your dad was a pretty big fisherman. Is that something he passed on to you or are you, you know, mostly kind of focused on hunting?
0: Um, you know, I actually, I'm, I'm a little bit unique as in one of those people that really didn't get into hunting till later in life. Um, I kind of, you know, but the kind of to answer your question, like fishing, he definitely passed that on. I don't, I haven't necessarily got into that as much. I still love doing it and it's, I'm very much a, a basic fisherman. I, I did fly fish a little when I lived in Montana, but uh, never anything that I could say that I was anything near good at it, but, uh. Yeah.
1: I feel like it takes but, a long uh, time
0: to say you're a good fly fisherman no matter how much you do it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So, so, but we spent, you know, we would spend, we would go out, we lived, uh, Kenyon Ferry Lake, which is kind of, uh, central, south, or I'm sorry, Montana. We'd take my grandpa's boat and go troll for, uh, trout with, uh, for the entire Saturday, you know, so we did that quite a bit. And, and my dad's philosophy always was it was, it's not, it's not about necessarily the fish. It's about the fellowship. So, um, so he, we absolutely love catching fish, don't get me wrong. But, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, that's really, what, and again, just that appreciation. So, But then with the hunting, I probably, after I got married in uh, 2005, I kind of started to show a little bit more interest in it. I had done a little bit of pheasant hunting. I went to college in Iowa, so I had some friends who did a little bit of pheasant hunting. And that's kind of what piqued my interest. And then just a little bit as in something to, you know, broaden my outdoor uh activities I started turkey hunting and then that kind of I kind of stuck to that a little bit of like waterfowl and then about I think it was three years ago I bought a bow and started deer hunting so um so it's been an interesting journey and I and honestly a lot of it boiled back to I moved to South Dakota and I just there was something about uh everything i've all my experiences i've had in the outdoors that hunting kind of seemed to maybe ramp it up a little bit and that interaction was there you know i I really love just the you know whether it's sitting in a tree stand or i got a chance to go hunt uh mule deer it was by myself this past fall but just sitting out and looking through a pair of binoculars There's something about just that interaction that hunting gives that Well, you can get that a lot of other places. I think it's just different and very, uh, very connected.
1: Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's funny you mentioned that. So I, I tend to to think that a lot of people who are introduced to hunting at a young age and whether they, they kind of fall out of it at some point in their life and get back into it, or whether it's something that they've been able to sustain from their childhood to their adult to adulthood is that it always kind of brings you back to, at least for me, when you were a kid, right? Like those memories that you shared with, you know, a dad, an uncle, a grandpa, you know, your entire family. And then as you get older and you have a family and you're not able to, let's say, get out hunting with your dad or or whomever kind of introduced you to it. Um, as much, there's, there's something nostalgic about it, right. That, that I think kind of draws you back in and then kind of engulfs you. At least that's how it was, uh, for me. Um, it's uh, it it's it's almost therapeutic, like you said, when you're kind of sitting behind glass and it's just wildlife around you. I mean, that's you can't get that experience anywhere else. That feeling,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, the like you said, the just the kind of the experience and them and the memories that can't tell you how many times we ended up pulling into a bay fishing uh, when I was younger, and because the you're sitting there and all of a sudden you notice water on the floor of the boat and like did anybody put the plug in <laughs> <laughs> pull up into a bay and somebody strips down and gets gets waist deep in water If gets the plug in and you go about your day so it's just little things like that that you just i mean they're experiences that you just think about all the time and it, it bring, there's so much more that comes to it when you ha- get to have stuff like that happen yeah
1: i think if you if you talk to anyone who spent you know a good amount of time outdoors recreating hunting fishing, you know, whatever it is. I think they have more stories of blunders and things (laughs) that go incredibly wrong than, you know, success stories out there. And I think, I mean, I think that's what I really love about, about hunting and fishing and things like that is I never go back to, oh yeah, that one time I, you know, caught this, you know, 22 inch Brown or, you know, I, I shot 140 or 150 class whitetail or whatever. It's, Oh yeah, it was this one time and you know, this went wrong, that went wrong. I mean, you were talking about your dad, um, you know, being really involved in photography when you were younger and stuff like that. So I have a quick sidebar when I was, uh, when we were spending one of our summers out in Colorado for, uh, fly fishing, um, we went into this piece of pro- this piece of water and, uh, in Colorado, I'm sure you're familiar that if the river runs through your property, you own the mineral rights. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we had been told that um, you know, if you pay the landowner like five dollars, he'll let you just come in there and, and fish his you know, it was a small creek, maybe twenty, twenty five feet wide in, in most places. So my dad's like, All right, we'll we'll go up in there and, and mind you I'm like eighteen at this point, so I'm I'm am i I'm close to an adult. <laughs> and yeah. uh he's like, I just wanna see you fish, you know. He's like, I'm just gonna bring the camera up in there and take some pictures and this is you know, 20 years ago. So digital cameras weren't, weren't a thing at that time, or at least we didn't have one. So we spend all day fishing and, you know, he's climbing up on some of these rocks and taking pictures from, you know, good vantage points and things like that. And I'm snapping off every fly he has. (laughs) And, you know, so we don't think anything of it. We get done fishing we go home or go back to the campsite, get home and it's a week or two later. And he's like, oh yeah, I'm going to go get that film developed. Opens up his camera no film in the camera so here yeah talk about a bonehead move so here he is yeah. snapping so, yeah. pictures for four or five hours and doesn't even bother to check that there's film uh in the camera yeah. So, yeah, like that's one of the things that yeah. just really sticks out to me about uh blunders when you're out in the field yeah so flash forward to to kind of where we're at now what is what is the outdoors? What is conservation? What does that look like to you now compared to maybe as a as a young kid?
0: Um, you know, it's still very much uh, a lot of the experiences is just kinda a big part for me. Um, don't get me wrong, I love having a deer to make some <laughs> some summer sausage and yeah. stuff like that. But honestly, I, I I'm I think as I've even aged even the short amount of time, it's it's really Reiterated just the fact of interacting, and um, and that's kind of what's driven a lot of my move towards being involved with different groups and really focusing on the conservation end of it. Um, I just I I'd, I'd hate to say you see it so much where things are changing and land is land is land is going away and you, we don't have access or whatever. It just I think it's just really important and to keep to support those things. And so you have those experiences. I mean, that's just really the biggest part of it is the experiences. And so now it's a lot of volunteering my time, uh, with, I mostly do it with two different groups. Uh, but I do, you know, I go to different fundraisers and that sort of things, but, but that's just volunteering my time for fundraising. Um, I try to help out with the wildlife survey sort of things every once in a while. But for the most part, um, the hunting is kind of, the hunting part of it is also just, it's almost like a bonus for me. I really just, it's really just important that it, it, the, the idea that we still have, you know, there's a quote that Aldo Leopold, that's my favorite quote. It says, you know, there's some people who can live without wild places, or some people who can live without wild places and some who can't, you know. And that's really where I fall into it. And it's just, I, I would hate to ever see the opportunity to not have um, a forest you can go, just hike through or you can go canoeing or hunting or fishing or anything. It just, that's really where my motivation lies now, kind of as I've aged and have my own kids, especially and ensuring that they have those opportunities. So.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a great point. Um, so what exactly, so where was kind of the turning point, I guess that made you decide to want to take a more active role in conservation with actually, you know, donating or, or, or volunteering a good amount of your time to these conservation orgs
0: yeah um like like we had uh we had mentioned a little bit earlier i think before we started recor- recording you know i i work for a, a healthcare or a hospital here in sioux falls and uh and so that that really consumes a good chunk of my time obviously because that's my full-time job and but i got to a point where you know having kids it's a little bit hard to do social things you know you're kind of tied up with uh Especially when they're younger, that is. You're a little bit tied. You're a little bit tied to home, and so I just really had this peaked interest of like, you know, I just feel like I need to be doing more. So, I basically just reached out to um, the Wild Turkey Federation, the like the regional director, and asked, you know, who do I talk to to get involved? And he got me connected with the group here in Sioux Falls, and and I started basically just helping them out. Their big fun their big kind of purpose is fund more of a fundraising arm of it. Um, they, they they do do some. Projects, don't get me wrong, there, but a big part of it is fundraising, and so I kind of got more involved with that, and I just really it sucked me in, you know. And then, and then of course all the other organizations that I've got involved with, I, you know, I hear through podcasts or whatever, and I'm like, you know what, I want to do that. I think it's just having that time, like I said, with the with being a little bit more tied down, and you kind of have some reflection time, and you you start to think, you know, I really these are the things I enjoy and you can even, I guess, tie it back to the kids. These are the things I enjoy and I want them to have that. And I feel really motivated to just kind of get into this. And it's really not that hard. It wasn't really that hard. I just basically reached out and that's hard for some people, even for me, believe it or not, sometimes to just reach out. But that's really kind of what sucked me in is I just thought I need to support this more somehow.
1: Yeah. And that's, I mean, and that's what kind of drove me to start, um, my company, the average conservationist, where I wanted to make sure that, you know, I have two young kids, I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old. So I wanted to make sure that when they got to be older, that they had, you know, the same opportunities that I had growing up where I could, you know, drive 15 minutes and be on state land, or I had all these lakes to fish or streams to fish and things like that. And I think that so many people, you know, take it for granted that it, we're always going to have this access. We're always going to have these resources and I'm not saying that they exploit them, but I'm, they just, you know, assume that we're always going to have the, the ability to, to, to recreate on all this land. And, you know, truth of the matter is we, we may not. So that's why I started that com- you know, this company and why I, you know, I give back to conservation groups to, to try to do as much as I can to help ensure uh, for you know, future generations that they can do the same things that we are.
0: Yeah, I think uh, especially kind of Midwestern, you see, you know, your opp- your opportunities are there, don't get me wrong, but, you know, you do see it. it. It is different. Having lived in Montana and here, it's, you know, my largest opportunities in South Dakota are still five hours away. You know, that's where the land kind of opens up. There's a little bit more public land. So around here, it's very agricultural and you just have to. I mean, you have to put in the work and you'll find places to hunt, I mean, and fish, and that's not that hard. But I think it little it puts it in a little bit different perspective, knowing that, yeah, there there is a finite amount of this. And there are people who, right or wrong, want to use a lot of that land for other things or, you know, communities grow and they need more housing, which is yep. fine. But it just, that's, it's kind of a fluid thing. So I think it's, it sometimes gets hammered a little bit more home when you live in a more agricultural kind of setting where there are motivations for other uses.
1: Right. So you mentioned, um, the National Wildlife Turkey Federation that you're involved with. What, um, are some of the other organizations that you're a part of or that you volunteer your time for?
0: Um, well, I, uh, probably the other bigger one that I've spent more time volunteering in the Rocky mountain goat Alliance. I, so believe it or not, we have mountain goats in South Dakota. Yeah,
1: you know, it's funny that <laughs> I was talking to Jared Frazier from 2% for conservation. Um We recorded a podcast uh, yeah. last week and he was like, yeah, you know, there's uh there's mountain goats um in South Dakota. And he's like, a lot of people don't know that. I'm like, yeah, I'm one of them. I did not know that there was, <laughs> that there was mountain goats in yeah. South Dakota. So,
0: yeah, the uh, the history behind them is they, you know, as most uh motivations were in the probably the, the 20s and 30s, you know, the idea was, well, let's let's build a zoo. And so they brought mountain goats to uh Custer South Dakota, and the very next night two of them broke out <laughs> they brought them there, and then the rest of them eventually broke out and they've been there ever since and they're not a huge population, but they've done well. And the state has really decided that, you know, we, w- we want to have them. Um, I, I have my concerns about moving forward of, of where, where we're going to land, especially with the uh, bighorn sheep, cause those are actually native in the black Hills. So, mm-hmm. um, and maybe concern isn't the right word, but you know, a lot of the things you've seen in say, uh, Olympic national park and the grand Tetons, I, I, I wonder where we're gonna go, but right now our state's pretty supportive of it. But uh, but anyway, back back to the organization. I uh, yeah, I so I was listening to a podcast. Um, as as I'd mentioned, I work work for a healthcare, so a lot of times I I do twelve hour shifts, so I pretty much work like three days a week, and then I'd have time off, which is great for kids and hunting and fishing and being yeah. outdoors. So um, I was just basically doing stuff around the house, listening to podcasts. And I heard about the Rocky mountain goat Alliance and actually in the very same podcast is about 2% for conservation, believe it or not. Okay. And after listening to that, there was just something about both of those organizations that clicked. I'm like, I want to be involved in these. And the big thing for the goat Alliance was they do uh, volunteer surveys. So, uh, and one of them happened to be in Black Hills. So like, well, that's great. That's just down the road from me. So that, so I immediately pretty much signed up, became a member, and that spring went and did a goat survey in the Black Hills. And it's, it's so much fun. And then I've done that for the past, I believe, three years. Unfortunately, with all the craziness, uh, they ha- did have to... Currently, they're saying it's postponed. I don't know. We'll see what happens. You know, there's just so many things. There's so much up in the air if that happens this year or not. But... Um, and then I actually had a chance to go back home and do a survey in the Bridger Range last summer, which was was cool because it was you know I grew up going to that range that mountain range and so so that's those that's another organization that I really love it, and honestly it's the kind of the tangible part of it. So many times with uh, going to a banquet or uh, buying a raffle ticket, which I, I think is very important. Don't get me wrong there's something that you is a little bit lost with only doing that. And I love the, it just kind of the tangible part of being out and being a part of it. And so, especially someone for myself, who's not at all involved in like the management end of it to actually kind of be, have a little piece of it. That's kind of cool to have that. So,
1: well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because you would think, or at least I would think that if you are involved in the Rocky mountain going Alliance, if you're, if you're a member, uh, and you're partaking in these goat surveys and things like that that you're you're trying to hunt them as well right oh, and yeah. if you're not involved in in or if you're not partaking in the uh the harvesting or the the management side of it um some people might ask well what 's in it you know what 's in it you know what do you get out of this but I think that that speaks volumes to you as a conservationist that you find that you know equally as important um to, to the population, to the herd and, and everything like that. So what does, um, what does a goat survey look like? I mean, I'm not, I'm not
0: at all familiar
1: being from Michigan here. So, uh,
0: yeah, you should, uh, hopefully that happens next year and you should come out. It's a lot of fun, especially in the Black Hills. It's, uh, it's a pretty, so like the Black Hills, uh, it's, it's a little bit different than some of the other surveys they do. Some of the other surveys are more, um, sort of backcountry sort of thing, and so it's the the black hills one's really fun because just because of the nature there's a lot of forest service roads there's a lot of highways so you pretty much in the hills you would drive to a location which there's kind of um if you really had to break it down there's three kind of major locations for the goat survey and you basically go to those surveys or those areas and head out on the trails and start start glassing for them basically and the process is such that you pretty much watch for them and then you have a log and the, the state game and f- our game fish, and parks here in South Dakota is involved. So they have a log and you would basically log, you know, where you saw the animal time of day. Um, they really, you know, you can try and identify the sex, but of the mountain goat, but it's very difficult to kind of do that from a distance and a uh, little plug for them. You know, the goat Alliance on their social media, a lot of times has, uh, Quizzes, because they're big into that's that's a big part of mountain goats is the harvesting of males as opposed to females. So, so they really push the education of how to identify them. But, but so you try and do that, and then you basically log that and move on. And so it's basically kind of an ongoing thing, and you find yourself going back to the same uh, areas a lot of times to every year after year. But again, you know, you're just kind of collecting data of the overall where where's the herd at uh the population of the herd How, what's the health you know because for instance they one thing that really piqued my interest was initially when they did their first survey here in the hills they had identified some uh problem with a female goat and i don't exactly remember what it was but it, it, was, it was something health related and the game and parks had never seen that before so it was kind of they picked up on something so So you're, you're not only there for the health of the herd, but you're there to find out, you know, what's the, you know, how is the herd growing, declining, that sort of thing. But, uh, but yeah, so basically you, you kind of, it's really simple and straightforward. You head out and count.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It seems pretty straightforward. I mean, is there, um, or was there a big difference between doing it in Black Hills there in South Dakota and um, out in Montana?
0: Yeah, uh, a lot, in a lot of different ways. Um, you know, it's, there's even in that Bridger range, which is pretty accessible. Uh, we, so my wife actually went with me and we went up and on one of the ski areas. So we actually were pre- able to drive, you know, part way up the mountain essentially. And then we hiked to an area that we were told to, to survey. So, but there were areas where people had to hike in and camp overnight. And because the, the biologist really wanted, uh, late in the evening, early in the morning sort of surveys of the animals. So that was, that's a little bit more involved and kind of, um, individual, if you will, you know, you had your groups and you broke out the, the black Hills survey is a little bit unique in that we, we actually camp at one of the state parks. And so it's a big group camp. So that, that you know, that's another big part of it is just that you get to meet, I've got to meet so many people going to these things at, especially the way it's set up in South Dakota, um, so you camp at one of the state park campgrounds, and you have a place where you can kind of do a morning meeting, and then you break out, and then you come back, and you basically uh, tally all your your counts up. So you, you have a lot of you have a lot of connection there. Whereas uh, you know it's a lot of fun in the other ones, but like I said, it's a little bit more individually based when you have to strike out and kind of camp overnight and that sort of thing. So so it's kind of in a way it's kind of like a big group. Summer camps sort of sort of feel with that one here. So
1: yeah, an adult uh, hunting summer camp minus the <laughs> yeah. hunting and yeah. and things like that. But no, I'd imagine that something like that you're you're able to meet a lot of like-minded people um, mm-hmm. who have the same um, outlook uh, on conservation and, and wildlife and preservation and things like that. So I and that's one of the things I've noticed over the last gosh I don't know five years. Uh, let's say with, with social media and the way um, conservation organizations have been able to utilize it. Um, I think they're able to appeal to a lot more people now that maybe they weren't um, prior to that. So that's, I I think that's a a great tool, which kind of brings me to my next question is with um, the National Wildlife Turkey Federation, um, what exactly is your role there? Because I know it's a you do more than just volunteer. You're, you're more than just a, a member and, and volunteer your time there.
0: Well, right now I'm, I'm, uh, jokingly regretting my, my decision to be involved <laughs> with all of the uh, cancellations and stuff. It's been a, it's been an interesting learning curve. Uh, two years ago I was asked to become the, the banquet chair. And so what that really entails is, is just kind of organizing the auction items, organizing the program for the night. Um, uh, I don't do too much with the donations other than organizing what kind of comes in and where they get, um, uh, basically placed kind of for the program or auctions or whatever. But, uh, but it's, it's a lot of, uh, event management, if you will. So, uh, so I, I've started doing that and this year has been a real unique challenge. In fact, uh, Tomorrow night we have a, a video meeting with a few people and anybody else who wanted to join in, uh, basically trying to decide, you know, we we were supposed to have our banquet in March and it's got postponed until June. So, but now it's kind of like, well, we don't know if it's going to happen. So we have a video meeting. We're going to have to try and figure that out. So it's a lot of, uh, a lot of extra, a uh, little bit of time here and there, which it, it's amazing how much. You know, it seems like a lot of work, but at the same time, it's kind of gratifying. And it ultimately, it's a couple hours here, a couple hours there. Sure, it doesn't make you a little bit more busy, but it's, it's so much fun to see everything kind of come together. And then, uh, honestly, to see that number at the end of the night that you brought in, and it goes right back into... That's one of the cool things about the Wild Turkey Federation is they pump a lot of the money back into the States, for example. And we've had so many good projects here. Um, whether it be high school trap teams or, uh, habitat projects, there's a small chunk of national forest up in Northwest South Dakota. That's got, they've done a lot of work up there to kind of improve habitat for turkeys. And, and ultimately that's the cool thing about turkeys. Ultimately you improve turkey habitat, you improve deer habitat, elk habitat, uh, pronghorn, all that stuff. So so that's kind of the gratifying part actually of being involved in almost kind of a like I mentioned, there's that there's that tangible hands on way, but the hands off, if you will, fundraising there is a gratifying part to that. And that's kind of what draws me in. And it's, it's been fun. It's, I, I tell you what, it's, it's quite the chore to organize. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like herding cats sometimes. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, I was
1: just going to, before you said that, you know, there was the, the tangible aspect um, of the fundraising part. I was, I was going to say the same thing. It's just, it's a, it's a little bit different, right? Where you're, yeah. you know, you've got yeah. boots on the ground uh, when you're doing these goat surveys. And then with this, it's a lot of, right. It's a lot of upfront, preparation making sure uh, yeah. everything is set for the event um, items for auction are all are all there food beverage all that you know venue there's a lot of stuff that goes into um, setting up one of those uh, banquets uh, but yeah like you said at the end of the night when you look at the money that you've raised through auctions you know whatever the case may be I mean yeah it's a it's a huge difference yeah. um, which I've I, I'd listened to a few podcasts, um, earlier this year, let's say maybe like late March when, you know, the whole pandemic was really first starting to kind of set in. Um, and the podcast kind of touched on what effects this was having on conservation organizations, um, fundraising membership numbers, things like that. What, I mean, give us, I mean, being, uh, in your position, with um, the Turkey Federation there and your local chapter, I mean, how big of an impact is, has that had on things?
0: Uh, well, it's it's going to be huge, and I think it's it's going to trickle down. I think organizations are are managing it okay. Um, I know that I know there's a lot of organizations that are in a hard place right now because obviously, like you've heard and probably heard in those podcasts, the majority of fundraising happens, you know, March. April time frame and just as a kind of a perspective here in South Dakota it's, it's no different I think we the, the Turkey Federation maybe got a couple banquets in I can't think of the numbers off the top of my head but other than that there's there's easily a dozen banquets within a couple month time frame and maybe only one or two actually got done so if you, if you take that as a reference and then realize that each organiz- each chapter generally spends you know anywhere from fifteen to twenty thousand dollars on um, different merchandise, venues, that sort of stuff as a baseline, and then you have a lot of other fees that come in too. For us, for instance, you know we have the way the Turkey Federation kind of organizes it is they have an auction pack- package that you purchase through them that they get at a discounted rate and that kind of is what you build your event around and you obviously get more donations in but but that alone you know is a sizable chunk of money and then to sit there and say okay now we're going to have to delay it so there it sits you know luckily we haven't been asked to necessarily pay up uh but then if you delay it again or cancel it it's kind of the point now it's like okay so how do we manage these bills, you know, and a lot of organizations have gotten creative with the online auctions. And so I think it's, it's, while it seems very simple of, of simple economics of you pay something, you, you buy something and pay it back. It gets really tricky when honestly your paycheck is dependent on getting rid of those things at the same time. So it's, it's, it's going to be a big impact. And I think we, it, I don't know if we'll see the full scope of it right away because it's just going to keep continue to trickle, I think, and there's been so much uncertainty with events on will they happen or not. It just is almost like a snowball right now where it's just building and building and
1: well, yeah, that's just it is there doesn't seem to be any i mean while it seems like we're we're kind of turning a corner or that we're you know starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel um, you know, there's, there's still so much uncertainty in terms of, you know, when we're going to be able to, you know, gather in groups again. Right. And it's, yeah, it's, it's gotta be unsettling. I mean, not only for, um, banquets, um, but I know a lot of these, you know, trade shows, things like that. Um, you know, for, for me in, in my company, you know, I spent, um, two weekends at, you know, trade shows here in Michigan, you know, outdoor type shows. Um, Mm -hmm. I had one cancel, um, at the mid March, I think it was the day before I was supposed to leave to head out of town for it. And then I was also going to be a part of total archery challenge, uh, here in Michigan, which was actually just rescheduled for the end of August. Um, but even, even with that time frame, I have some, some question marks on, <laughs> on if it's still actually going to happen I mean, being outdoors, you can definitely, um, social distance yourself a bit better, yeah. but, uh, you know, how, how those things work with, you know, riding up chairlifts at, at ski resorts and things like that. I mean, it's, it's tough to stay six feet yeah. away there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The total archery challenge here in, uh, the Hills is still kind of up in there, same situation. And I think it's, it's, yeah, there's, on the surface it seems simple to work through it and this applies to the banquets too you know well you you say well you know you can be in a big big space and distance yourself and yeah that's great but then you're also inviting people to kind of get on top of each other bathrooms like you said on the chairlift so so yeah it's a hard space to navigate and it's just i don't know if anybody knows what the right answer is and unfortunately the kind of the simple way out of it is to postpone until next year or whatever And, and then that. And that has a trickle down effect in itself. We just had a, there's a local rodeo here that happens every year. It's been happening for a long time, and that's at the end of June, and right this, I think it's over. It's the one of the same dates as our banquet, and we've always kind of felt like, okay, you know, get to the end of June, things will start to maybe get a little bit better. And I just saw today that they canceled that that big rodeo, and that's outdoors, obviously. And yeah. it's like, oh. Man, you know, kind of gives you a little sinking feeling like now if they're canceling that, what's going to happen for us? You know, yeah, that's a
1: month and a half away, right? And they're they're already canceling it. Yeah, that that probably doesn't bode well. So one other organization that you are involved with and we we just touched on it a little bit is 2% for Conservation. So obviously this podcast, we are partnered with 2% for Conservation. That's how um, you and I were introduced to one another. So what is your role with 2% or how did you become involved with 2%? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a newer, um, organization. Um, so yeah, tell us about that.
0: Yeah. Um, I just, you know, I'll, I'll put in a shameless plug. If people aren't tuned into what, what they're doing, it's really cool. It's a diff, it's a different mindset and, you know, it kind of con or kind of goes against a little bit of the old, uh, banquet fundraising, creating more partnerships, which I think there's a middle ground. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to knock banquets and stuff, but I think there's a middle ground that they are fulfilling that space that hasn't been there. And so like, if you aren't in tune to it, I would encourage people to look into it. But what happened was, Oh, I think it's been about a year now. They put out a call for uh, people, regional people, so to speak, to get involved and be kind of a voice to obviously uh present what two percent stands for but also their leaders in their 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 area their region of conservation and be kind of a source for other people who want to get involved because ultimately that's what what two percent stands for is involvement you know whether it be financially or time that that's really it's it's those things married together so um so i yeah it's they, they put out for that and I'm like, I gotta be involved with that. And luckily they were, uh, they were nice enough to include me in it. And so I've, I'm part of the regional committee, uh, group, if you will. And, uh, we have, you know, we have some touch bases, kind of, we have an app that we connect with uh, other members and we, when we have problems, we brainstorm with each other of, Hey, how can I work through this? You know, especially like fundraising or, um, events that we want to do uh, projects we want to do it's it's a real good network and I found myself reaching out to probably more people now to kind of talk about it Um, I have that motivation obviously as being part of the committee but I do find myself reaching out a little bit more and talking about conservation as a whole to people and I've really enjoyed it had a chance to be on some other podcasts just it's it's fun to present what two percent stands for as far as um, volunteering your your time uh, giving some of your income and really committing to that—that's really what just kind of gets gets me fired up about the organization. So,
1: yeah, and I think it's a great thing too because, you know, one when Jared and I spoke, is that a big a big thing was is that conservation is not a competition, right? I mean, it's no matter what anyone can do, it's it's for the betterment of you know wildlife, habitat, things like that. So, that's what. I love about 2% for conservation is you're one, you're you're you've made the financial investment, but you've also made the investment of your time, which to me shows even more dedication than just being able to write a check. I mean, there's plenty of people out there who have, uh the, you know, the means to be able to, to give back um, financially. And that's, that's great. Um, but I think the, the boots on the ground, right. The, the getting involved, in, you know, local cleanups, you know, goat surveys in, in your example, uh, in your, in your instance, excuse me. Uh, I think that, you know, speaks volumes to where conservation is headed and, and, you know, marrying the two together, um, I think is a, is a great idea.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, it, like you said, just kind of that giving back your time. There's so much, it's 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 fulfilling, but also it's just really important to, I think, to push that because you know there's as new as the organization is, there's still that old adage of or of fundraising where it's time, talent, and treasures. You know, I have one of my guys from the Turkey Federation always pushes that home. He's been doing it for I don't know how long, long time, maybe thirty years even, and uh, he always pushes that home I'm like you know really we have to think about time talent and treasure for people when they volunteer or they come to the banquet or what do they, what do they have to offer and the cool thing is as new as what two percent is is it really plays on to that old adage of of the basics of of giving back of that time talent and treasure and it hits all of those which is really cool and what i really enjoy most about it and it's creating not only just pe- just people, but businesses that it's highlighting them too, which is really kind of the most interesting part. You don't just see that where there's where the businesses that give back so much every year. I could rattle off a list of businesses here in town that every year have stepped up for our banquets and uh, given us, you know, hundreds, even sometimes thousands of dollars of stuff, and they don't get a much recognition other than a thank you card from us, you know? And so, so to have an organization that says, no, they deserve to be organized recognized too is really cool. And it really highlights what they stand for is it's, it's, it's not just people. It's the, it's organizations that have the money and the power, so to speak, to give back and make sure they get, get to be part of the conversation.
1: Well, you touched on a good point when you mentioned that it's kind of shifting or, or changing the way things have always been done, right, With, in terms of the banquets. And, and I completely agree that there's definitely a place for that, and it, it's definitely good. But I think that as the, the, the landscape of hunting and fishing and the outdoors changes and a newer generation is kind of, I don't want to say ushered in, but is kind of you know, taking over, I think that things like 2% appeal more to them right with the oh. you know with the especially some of the businesses that are um members of 2% for conservation i mean they're i mean sick of gear first light i mean these are two of the the larger companies in terms of um you know outdoor uh hu- technical hunting uh clothing that are in the industry you know and then there's you know a lot of supplement company i mean there's there's so many different companies that make um, uh, make it a priority to to give back, and and even companies that you wouldn't necessarily think, oh, well, you know, why are these guys giving back to conservation? Well, you know, maybe because the the owner, if it's a smaller company, or that's just something that they're they're passionate about. So it's great to see companies like you said who who have the means that are actually giving back to conservation um, when so many of their um, you know uh, customers like you, like me, are. Are supporting them that they're actually su- turn around and supporting you know what we love to do
0: yeah absolutely I and mean, it's just it it really highlights that uh like you you know you kind of mentioned the cha- the, the change so to speak and younger generations coming in and um what you know i we have a younger couple that just joined our, our, our chapter here of the Turkey Federation. And we were talking the other day and there, and it's cool. That's the other cool thing is, you know, you get these young people and they're fired up and they have all these ideas and it energizes you. And they made a comment of, um, like, yeah, we didn't even know, really know your group existed. And I'm like, yeah, you know, it's, it's just kind of group that's been here. And, uh, it started as a group of friends, so it's been really, you know, it hasn't necessarily, it's grown, but it hasn't necessarily grown to the level that you see a lot of newer organizations. And, you know, I think 2% kind of, again, hits that home, like you had said, where it's it appeals because it's, it's a more, you know, it kind of, it, it has that tangible thing. And I think that's what was really important to a lot of younger people. It's important to me, obviously, too. But I think there's even more you see, the younger generation who they want to have something kind of in front of it's not a selfish thing is it's they just want to be able to feel that they've made a difference yeah,
1: and they want to be involved they want to be included yeah
0: right. yeah so so i think so i think that's what organizations like two percent and even for that matter you know like the goat alliance who has something you can actually do uh is it is really appealing and that's kind of the cool thing about how conservation is cha- the especially the the kind of the non-profit non-pro- sort of arm of it is changing
1: well it, it it's funny um where we just talked about wanting you know a lot of the younger hunters and and outdoorsmen and outdoorswomen want to be um kind of included i think it's almost like a like a fear of missing out like fomo a little bit right when there's these <laughs> these pint nights or these river, uh, yeah. cleanups or, or anything like that, where, you know, when, when a lot of us were in our early twenties in college and, and things like yeah. that, you know, if your friends were going out and you weren't able to go for whatever reason, you're like, oh man, I wonder what they're doing. And then now, yeah. you know, us adults as hunters in our thirties and forties and stuff like that, there's a, a cleanup or a, like I said, a pint night or something like that. And we're going, man, I wish I could be there. <laughs> right. Things like that. So I think that a lot of these organizations have done a really good job of appealing, um, to their members and trying to get the most, um, out of them and, and, you know, have the, have the best outcome or, um, whatever the case may be.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I had, I had a chance to go to the leadership conference at the national convention in Nashville for the wild Turkey Federation. And, and that's something they've recognized that they have not been as strong in, in, um, kind of appealing to the younger generation and what really drives them. And they're really making a push. Uh, There's some exciting things that they've identified. You know, they're still obviously, they hit a huge bump in the road with all this pandemic stuff, but um, they're they're working towards that. And so, and it just, it it amazed me too that when I was talking to that couple that I mentioned, when I was talking to them, that their motivation, you know, obviously they care about conservation and they care about wildlife, but some of their motivation also was just the connections. And I think as, those of us who've gotten older over the years, that we forget about those, you know, we get busy in our own lives with our careers, with our kids, and we kind of forget about, even for us, how important those connections with people and different things were when we were younger, and they really strive for that, and there's, I think we kind of forget about that, and they maybe get left in the dust a little bit, and one, that's one thing we're gonna really work hard this coming year with our uh, local chapter here, is try and kind of make an inviting sort of atmosphere where we get people involved and really connect them to people who've been doing this for a long time and can kind of le- and then they can then learn from them. So,
1: well, yeah, and Turkey hunting, it's a little bit different than when you think of uh, other species like whitetail, uh, you know, even waterfall or upland hunting is, you know, it's done in the springtime. So it's not in the fall, like a lot of the other um, uh, hunting seasons. And it's, if, you know, for me, who grew up, I grew up, um, you know, hunting upland and, and waterfowl, and then whitetail. Um, you know, I, I never, t- I've, I've turkey hunted probably a handful of times in my life, and I've not had a good experience with it. <laughs> my, my brother-in-law every year is like, "Come on, we got to go." You know, he, he keeps kind of yeah. bending my ear on it, but. It's, it's something that I think it gets kind of overlooked, but I think it's, it's starting to make, um, a bit more of a comeback, especially as social media again is, is kind of, um, taking over with the hunting and fishing industry is that now there's more eyes on it, especially to younger, uh, younger generations who maybe haven't done it. Um, and it's, to me, it seems like it's a little bit easier to get into turkey hunting. Absolutely. Um, I mean, there's still obviously the investment of a firearm or, you know, if you're a bow hunter, you have a bow as well, but you know, it's, it's a little bit easier than, you know, like bow hunting, for example. I mean, you can attest to this just having purchased one or gotten into bow hunting recently, you know, the amount of time you have to spend to, to become confident, you know, just out to (laughs) 30 yards, right. Let alone further than that. And with a shotgun, (laughs) you know, it's, it's a little bit easier, right. It doesn't take nearly the amount of practice time it does now mm-hmm. granted there's calling and scouting and all those other things that go yeah. into it. But yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting to see, um, how organizations are trying to recruit, um, you know, new members through that, that meeting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah you're absolutely right. Like it, it's such a, turkey hunting is such a good way to get people involved. You know, it's, it's generally, yeah. Although we've had a couple snowstorms on opening day here yeah. in South Dakota, but recently, but, uh, you know, generally it's 40, 50 degrees as opposed to 20 when you're sitting in a tree. Yeah. Sand, you know? Yeah. yeah I mean, so, the like, worst part
1: I about turkey hunting is the ticks and stuff like that this time of year. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But I had my son with me, uh, the other weekend when I went and it's, it's so much easier for him to sit there and enjoy it when he's not, you know, freezing cold and, so it just it's a, it's a real good way to introduce people into it. So yeah,
1: yeah. Well, that's awesome. So I mean, would you say turkey is your favorite animal to hunt? Then
0: you know, it's the one I've dedicated probably the most time to just over the years of when I become hunt when I've started hunting. Uh, so that I, I'd say I have like a soft spot for it. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> but I like I said I had a chance to go um, mule deer hunting this fall, and then I had an antelope tag last year. I believe it was. Or two, or two years ago now. Um, and I tell you, there's something about just that putting a pack on and hi- hiking around. And granted, it's, it, is, it is complete. I, I don't mean to claim at all that we have the backcountry stuff here in South Dakota. But there are areas where you can walk for miles, you know, and, and it's just rolling hills or um, a little bit of forest land. There's it, just something about that that is really, it's kind of sucked me in. And I've really enjoyed doing that wide open sitting and being patient and observing. And there's something about that. And so I probably have, have kind of veered a little bit away from my focus, of Turkey hunting, but yeah, I I definitely, definitely has a soft spot for me. So.
1: Yeah. And you're in a unique spot there in South Dakota too, where you still have a lot of what the Midwest has to offer, but then you're also knocking on the door of, you know, true Western hunting. Uh, I mean, with, yeah. we'll do with even, you know, mule deer and stuff in South Dakota there. I mean, yeah, it's uh, you're in a good spot. That's for sure.
0: Yeah, if it's we're it's it's a really cool state. I, I really enjoy living here because there's so many different. Like I said, what state can you basically completely dedicate yourself to agricultural sort of whitetail and then drive five hours if you're lucky enough to get one of the two tags? But go go hunt a mountain goat, you know, <laughs> Yeah, so.
1: is that what it is? But, two tags yeah. a year.
0: Yeah, it's two a year, and it's it's lifetime. So um, yeah, maybe someday, but I doubt it. But it's still like, like that's the 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 cool thing about those limited tags, though, is you know, you you your buddy or even somebody you don't know gets one, and it's not a competition. You know, everybody knows there's only two, and they're never gonna have it against. So everybody's like, all right, let's do this. You know, we have. I have a standing agreement with some guys I've met through these goat surveys. Are like, all right, if any of us get it, we're all going. I mean, that's just the way <laughs> it is, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, so, uh, that's. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh that, no, that's okay. I was just going to say that's just the cool thing about those limited tags, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, here in Michigan, we have uh, we have elk, which is yeah, uh, you know, it, some people might think it's odd, but there's obviously states around here that that have elk, um, but I think we have. Um, I think it's two, maybe two or 300 tags a year throughout the different seasons. Um, And it's, again, it's a lifetime tag. So once you get one, you're done. Uh, But I mean, it's great because so many people know that you're probably never going to draw a tag. uh, But people still put in and, you know, that money still goes towards conservation, which is great. And surveys and, and things like that. So, I mean, yeah, we just, I just bought my elk tag or my application for an elk tag yesterday. So, you know, just got to build those points though, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, I just made my month or my yearly donation of my uh, elk, bighorn, goat. Actually, it's a, there's a bunch of different elk seasons here. So I think four different ones I applied for and then uh bighorn and mountain goat. So I made, I made my yearly donation. I call it because it probably won't happen.
1: <laughs> so, so what does hunting season, uh, what does that look like for you for 2020? I mean, Hopefully, you know, there's some sense of normalcy in terms yeah. of, uh, you know, this pandemic and everything like that. And we're able to still get on with our lives. Get, what does yours look like?
0: I honestly don't. I, I I've kind of I'm kind of like small dog syndrome on the whole hunting thing, because I, I've discovered with family and career and that sort of thing that it's a little bit easier now if I say, OK, I'm going to go for like a week. Uh, you know, my wife's been really cool about uh, letting me go. She recognizes it's for good for my mental health. And so so I kind of try to dedicate, you know, whether it be maybe a long weekend or a week, whatever. I guess it doesn't really matter. So I, I just really haven't decided. I might kind of do a, a pronghorn uh, hunt. Uh, I've got some family who's talked to. The, he's He actually lives in Michigan also. And uh, so the problem is being a non-resident, it's a little bit tougher to draw. Yeah. But uh, if he were to draw one, I'd maybe do that. Otherwise, I may go out and mule deer hunt again. But otherwise, I have my old standbys. Of, I have a little chunk of ground that I'm allowed to hunt on for whitetail. So I got trail cameras out, and I kind of go do that and uh, try and get the deer for the freezer, so to speak. And then I have my little adventures otherwise with um, mule deer or pronghorn, whatever. I don't know. I, like I said, I just kind of been a little bit small dog and not sure what I want to do. <laughs> well, I
1: think that's good. You keep your options open. And and like yeah. you said, it can be tough too, especially if you want to hunt, you know, four or five different species and it's all kind of spread out from September to November. Exactly. And I mean, that's, you know, with a job, with, you know, a family, with young kids. I mean, that, that's a lot of, that's a lot of time. And, you know, there's, there's certain obligations that we have to tend to.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I guess uh, the big thing is the little bit, maybe wait and see, because so for example, in South Dakota, just the way the tag structure is, you know, So, for example, the first thing that gets drawn, like I said, is the elk, bighorn, and mountain goat. Um, If I, for whatever reason, elk is hard to get, but, I mean, it's not outside the realm of possibility. If I were to get that, I'd probably kind of put a lot of stuff on the back burner and really dedicate, because that's, you can only get those every nine years in South Dakota. So, so if I were to get one, it's like, okay, I'm going to put some time into this, and you know, maybe go out in the summer a little bit and scout and then put some time in, in the fall, maybe even multiple trips, just cause it's such a unique opportunity to be able to do that. Um, then I likely that's none of those are going to happen. So then, <laughs> then it kind of moves to, uh, the next thing that gets drawn is rifle, uh, rifle deer. So then that, and there's a place that I really want to get a rifle tag up in Northwest, uh, South Dakota. So if I were to get a tag there, kind of the same thing, I'd, kind of set my season around like, all right, I'm going to dedicate my time to that. And the, the place I whitetail hunt is just, it's literally 20 minutes away. So it's really simple for me to go out on a Saturday morning or, um, even if I have a day off during the week, I can run down there. So it, so that's kind of my old standby, if you will. I just, otherwise I structure my season around kind of what I draw basically. It's, you know, we have a lot of opportunities, but it's also not necessarily, um, a guarantee here. So
1: Right. Well, yeah, that's, I think that's best is, is keeping your options open and seeing how things yeah. unfold and, and making a game plan from there. Because right, like you said, if you draw an elk tag or you draw the, the white tail rifle tag that you're looking for, yeah, everything else kind of spend your time on, on the tag that you have and and what you want to pursue. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, Greg, I appreciate you taking the time to, to talk with me today. Um, you yeah, no best of luck here for the rest of 2020. Thank you. Hopefully, appreciate um, it. you know, we get back to some sense of uh, <laughs> a normal every day and, yeah. you know, we can get back to, to doing what we love and um, supporting conservation and doing what we can there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate it. And best of luck to you with your venture here and uh be interesting to see how this grows. I think it's a great thing. Just kind of promoting the, like I like I said, with the surveys, you know, I'm just an average dude, <laughs> <laughs> who just loves getting involved. And so I think it's really, it's a really cool space to highlight that there's so many people out there that, uh, uh, are involved, but they, you know, they work at a bank or they, you know, work at a restaurant, you know, so that's, I think that's really cool. And, and kudos to you for pushing that.
1: Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. I think that, um, people like you and, and, uh, you know, gentleman Mark that I spoke with last week, I think more people need to hear about um, you know, what the average person is doing. And I mean, that's the, I mean, the average conservationist podcaster, right? I mean, I think that (laughs) there's going to be a lot of people that
0: (laughs) go, oh, who's who's
1: Greg, who's Mark, you know, but I think that these are the stories that need to be told, right? I mean, people are going to say that about me. Who's this guy? So, yeah, it's pretty um,
0: straightforward. There's no question on what what you're
1: (laughs) And conservation is, is something that needs to be talked about. So I'm glad we were able to sit down today and, you know, I look forward to talking to you in the future.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's good talking to you.
1: All right. Thanks, Greg. All right. Well, there you have it. A big thank you to Greg for taking some time to speak with me today. Uh, I'd also like to thank our partners, 2% for Conservation. Uh, If you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And there, you can see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop for your gear, um, your guiding services, coffee, and really anything else that you can think of. Uh, I encourage you all to look up and follow 2% for Conservation on social media, uh, where you are going to get uh, a steady stream of positive conservation-driven uh, content. Uh, again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for Conservation, you can look them up online on their social media or on their website at fish wildlife.org. Thanks for joining me today, everybody. I hope you enjoyed it. Remember, stay safe out there and conservation starts with you.